0: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education, and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now, here's your host, Mary Woods.
2: Happy Monday, everybody. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. Um, Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, We have an opportunity to talk about something that's been um, near and dear to my heart for a long time, and I really hope that... Some of you who are listening will join in on the discussion. Um, our show today is is focusing on a couple of things. One is um, looking at treatment for addictive disorders and mental illness from a strengths perspective, and the other is um, really having a discussion about um, the ways in which um, the addiction profession stigmatizes and discriminates against the people that we are. Um, Dedicated to treat, and with us today we have a guest, Reed Slavin, who is a part-time student, and he works part-time as a chef, and he also works as a part-time mentor here at Westbridge. And Reed has um, three years of recovery, and welcome, Reed. Um, Reed and I have had an opportunity to do a workshop on this um, topic a couple times, and that's why we wanted to share this hour with you. So. Um, Ree, thank you for joining us.
3: No problem. It's nice to be here.
2: Um, I, first of all, I, I just want to kind of lay the groundwork for, um, first of all, talking about some of the ways in which we may stigmatize or um, discriminate as treatment professionals. Um, and that's for addiction or mental health disorders. One of the things, if we're looking at folks from a strength based perspective, what we're doing is we're looking at the things, what are the things people do well, what are their goals, what are the things, what are their resources, what are the things that they can draw on for themselves. When we think about um, calling somebody a schizophrenic or somebody uh, manic depressive or, or a borderline or an addict or an alcoholic, those are laden labels that all have a lot of energy behind them. And for a lot of people, the energy tends to be fairly negative. Um, I don't know how many times I've been in a car riding with someone who has a mental illness, listening to the radio, and listening to people just use words like, oh, he's crazy, or he's schizo, or whatever... And what are very common terms for some people when you're sitting with somebody who experiences those kinds of symptoms, it's like, wow, this is really shaming and blaming for people. And I don't know that people do it intentionally. I think it's just part of our vocabulary. And I think um, in the addiction world, when I first started working in this profession, it was common for us to say, um, this is our treatment program, and if you're ready, fine, you're welcome to come in, but if you're not ready, go out, and when you're ready, come back. And essentially what we were saying to people was, um, you know, if you're not ready to do what we want you to do, then just go out and continue to use, and when you hit bottom, you can come back, and maybe then you'll be ready to um, partake of what we have to offer. And I don't know of any other illness um, chronic illness that we would do that in. We think about um, addiction being a brain disease. We think about mental illness being a brain disease. Um, there's something fundamentally different about um, people that have these disorders in terms of their brain and how their brain is wired and, and um, reacts to stress and, and substances and all kinds of other things. And So if we think about this as a medical condition, which I believe um, it is, then what other condition would we say, you know, when you're having an insulin reaction because you just ate a bunch of cookies and you just went to a <clears throat> you went out to eat and you had a lot of um, high-sugar foods and now you're having an insulin reaction and you're in the emergency room? We would never say to somebody like that, come back when you're done eating sugar. Or we would never say to somebody who has heart disease, who has chest pain, who has gained weight, is not taking their medication um, as prescribed, and maybe is um, very sedentary, we wouldn't say to them, you're having chest pain, you haven't changed your behavior, so we're only going to give you one episode of care. Or um, you only can go inpatient with chest pain once because um, you used up all your insurance or you, um, you really have to change your behavior before we will... Um, even look at what's causing your chest pain or try to um, treat your chest pain. And the nature of a chronic illness is that it waxes and wanes over the course of a lifetime, and almost every chronic illness is affected by what we eat, how we exercise or not, um, the the quality of sleep we get, and um, our overall behaviors in general. And so when we think about um, addictive disorders and we think about how we treat people, um, you know, are we throwing people out if they relapse out of a residential setting? Um, is it is it really true that if somebody relapses in residential, it brings everyone else down in the program? Um, is it true that people have to hit bottom? Um, for some people, bottom is death or bottom is, um, you know, going to a place from which they'll never come back, cognitively or physically. Um, So these are some of the things that we, we, Reid and I, are going to talk about. And um, if you're out there listening, we would like to have your thoughts on these things, too. I don't want to suggest in any way that, um, you know, we're striving for progress, not perfection. And I think that... um, You know, I just know that people get better over the course of time, and that there isn't any magic bullet for people getting better. And I think that it's really important for us as treatment providers to begin to rethink some of our um, basic tenets. Um, So, having um, said all of that, uh, Reid, what are your thoughts?
3: Well, I definitely agree and support everything that you're saying, and. know i think it's very important to treat people where they're at you know for all the reasons that you've mentioned and you know um firsthand myself and you know working in the field i've seen people who are so close to death um i've seen people who have died and i've also seen people that have been very successful and i believe that this motto has been so useful to any amount of success at all and um you know, when you say progress, not perfection, I mean, you know, I've been grateful that somebody's put down, you know, narcotics and they stay, they might still be drinking um, or using marijuana or prescription pills um, that are prescribed to them a little more than they should. But, you know, at least they're not taking amounts that would have them ending up in the emergency room or maybe um dead and having everybody worry about them and you know it's just um in my own experience i would have to say that uh you know i was dying and you know my progress moved very slowly and people had given up on me multiple times um multiple treatment facilities um Uh, discharged me due to my behavior or due to my uh, drug and alcohol use. And, you know, I mean, the way that I used was not in any way um, going to decrease. Uh, I had to stop. And, you know, being turned away when I'm at my worst, like you were talking about with being diabetic or somebody with a heart problem, you know, People were turning me away, and, you know, when I came to Westbridge, I was able to, um, you know, work on myself um, and have little bits and pieces of progress to the point where it became stepping stones, and I was able to put down the drugs and the alcohol, and I was I was able to join, you know, a 12-step program and move forward in my life. And, um, you know... This, what you talk about is the only way that I think that possibly could have happened, you know, being meeting, meeting me where I was at. And, um, you know, I just can't say enough about that motto because, you know, I would literally be dead, and there's no question about that. Um, I watched a very close friend of mine um, who wasn't in this area, wasn't in Westbridge, and... You know, he passed away, and, you know, he wasn't receiving any kind of treatment. And, you know, it's just, it was the same exact scenario for me, only, you know, I wasn't turned away, and he kept getting turned away, and, um, you know, he's passed on. So, you know, it just shows how powerful that this can be for people to get better.
2: I think sometimes people have a misconception that if you meet somewhere someone where they are at, then you are tolerating the behavior. You're tolerating all of the um, ineffective coping strategies or the ineffective communication um, style. And can you kind of share with folks a little bit about your experience with, with having been met where you're at?
3: Well, it's a very great area. Um, I think that you know, a lot of people are labeled. You know, as soon as as soon as they're diagnosed with a physical addiction um, to any substance, you know, it, it's almost like that that becomes who they are. And for me, that's not who I am. You know, I have a bunch of things that I could play off that people might stigmatize um, as who I am, but it's not who I am. And in order for me to be who i am i need people to support me as a person you know instead of a label like a drug addict or an alcoholic and um you know i it was really useful for me to to feel like i was equal um but at the same time acknowledge that i have a problem with drugs and um i think that's where it separates you know uh, the stigmatism versus, you know, reality of that situation.
2: Um, I know that um, one of the things that um, I think is really important is that when people are in treatment, they get introduced to um, different community supports, be it a twelve-step group or a faith-based group or whatever, um, and. How we do that as clinicians is really important, and we'll talk a little bit more about that after our break, and uh, give us a call. We'll be right back.
1: You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking.
4: For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, shamanic technologies of consciousness and success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel.
5: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
1: A fresh look at today's health, Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: About um, stigma and discrimination, and strength-based, and um, I think that um, before we went to break, I was talking a little bit about um, how we introduce self-help to people at different stages of change. And I know early on, when we first started our residential program, people were saying, "Well, we need to take people to AA every day, or NA every day, or whatever self-help group every day." And Oftentimes we would get people in the house who were pre- who were in a pre-contemplation stage who really didn't think they had a problem with alcohol or drugs or they were really ambivalent but hadn't made a decision to change. And sending folks like that to an AA meeting, oftentimes what you get in return is, well, when I go there, it just makes me want to use, or I, you know, those are all, people that um, I was never like that or I can't identify with anything they say or, you know, I'm not into the God thing. And, um, and so it becomes counterproductive sometimes. And I think as treatment providers, we really have to find um, creative interventions for folks um, so that if they, if they haven't made a decision to stop using alcohol and drugs, then how do we introduce um, a program of recovery in a, in a, in a recovery community to them? Um, I think we have to be a lot more creative than we have been. When we're talking about strength-based treatment, one of the principles of strength-based treatment is being able to um, really encourage hope and that people who have hope often will make more positive changes than people who feel shamed and blamed. And looking at, as treatment providers, how do we instill hope in people and how um, how do we provide an atmosphere of hope and um you know is that is that a skill we need to develop or is that something that um people feel is you know um it's really about motivation it's not about hope and um once again reed i'd like to invite you to share with us um your perspective on on hope
3: okay well um i think that i'm going to bring it back to uh the end of my career um using drugs and um you know what I want to talk about is um you know the way that Westbridge works we were talking about you know we don't give up on people who are you know active in their addiction and using and you know I don't want Westbridge to be stigmatized as a place that allows the participants to walk around the house um using and high and you know, making issues for the other people that are there trying to get well. But at the same time, you know, um, for me, I was uh, I was definitely um, using when I was at the house and um, it was caught on to that. And, you know, what happened was Westbridge did not decide to give up on me but they also knew that I couldn't be in the house because I was a danger to the other people. So, you know, this was my bottom. I was at the homeless shelter in Manchester, and, you know, it was pretty scary. I had burned all my bridges, and I had, um, you know, just really hurt the relationships of the people around me trying to help me, and, you know, but at the same time, you know, people were telling me that they still cared and um, they were going to come back and get me the next day and, you know, they were providing support and they were holding me accountable at the same time and they were showing me hope because, you know, I had basically stolen medication and, you know, misused it and, um, you know, it was very bad. So, you know, it was just, you know... (laughs) I don't even know how to explain totally how everything took place because it was so quick and it was also three years ago. But it was the point that I decided that, you know, I couldn't do this anymore. It wasn't working for me. And it was also the point that I realized that there are people in my life that care so much about me. In fact, they cared more than I was caring about myself at that moment. And I think that's what Mary is talking about with the hope you know, and other treatment facilities would have just, you know, thrown me out, and um, they would have said, we can't help you, you're still using, and, you know, that scenario for me, I'd probably be dead right now, and instead, you know, I am in a very, a much more healthy place than I was before.
2: Thank you for sharing that. Um when I want to ask you if you'd share, what was what was it like coming back to the treatment program if you'd been at the shelter?
3: Well, um, the people, uh, the staff members never changed the fact that they were fully supportive of, you know, helping me and helping me to make good decisions. Also, one thing that I forgot to mention was, you know, I still had all my tools with me when I went to the homeless shelter, so um, I started using them. I joined a 12 step program. You know, that day I acclimated that into my life, um, and it still remains today. You know, I have not stopped um, getting support from, you know, the community and, you know, um, the treatment facility worked with me after I left the shelter and helped me to get an apartment. Um, they knew that I had tools to do what was necessary. They they saw that I was moving forward and that I had, you know, created a few stepping stones and had options of what to do, and I was doing the right things. And, you know, it, they just kept providing hope. And um, I had struggles, and they were there. And, you know... Luckily, I didn't relapse, but even if I had at that point, too, they still would have have not given up on me. And, you know, I have to be quite honest. I'm very fortunate because today that's that's part of what I do. Um, I work in the house that's the treatment facility, and I also work in the outpatient. And, you know, I get to see people at their worst, and then I get to see them, you know, with their progress, and I get to see you know, how they're changing as a person and how they're becoming who they are as a person and not as an addict or an alcoholic. And to me, that's a huge privilege. I think
2: you're right. It's a privilege for all of us to see people um, blossom and grow in their recovery. Uh, One of the things that you're talking about that's another basic uh, principle for a strength-based um, treatment program are the quality and types of relationships that are developed. Um, you know, it, there's been research that says that like, you know, 35 percent of a successful treatment outcome has to do with the relationship between the individual and their and their counselor or their therapist, and uh, another 35 is the the resilience and resources that the people bring to to the relationship, and then like 15 percent of what makes treatment successful is the actual therapy or types of therapy that you do, that, you know, um, recovery happens through people. We see that in in um, self-help communities. We see that in treatment programs that, um, you know, there's there has to be that kind of connection and there has to be that um, ability to have somebody believe in you when you don't believe in yourself or somebody who will, you know, be there um, to to say, you know, it's going to be okay. You don't have to go this. You don't have to go this by yourself. You don't have to be, um, it's it's okay to be human. It's okay to make mistakes. And I think that that's a vital part of anyone's recovery. And I think sometimes in the profession we hide behind this distance of, well, if somebody says to me, gee, you know, you look like you're really frustrated right now. And if I say to them, oh, um, well, how do you feel about the way I look? Or, or how, if I just always have this wall between myself and the other person, then I'm not modeling authentic communication. I'm not even modeling authentic feelings. So how can you teach someone um, the human experience if you're not on some level willing to share that experience with them? And that's kind
3: of what I hear you saying, Reed. Yeah, and I'm trying to reiterate it because, you know, you do a very good job of it yourself, and, you know, I can definitely touch base on the um, the piece. I don't want to repeat you, but the relationships um, are just so important, and, you know have the participants or the people whoever, you know, the staff um, on good terms with each other you know, it just creates um, an environment that it attracts healthier behaviors and it, it attracts people to open up you know, and it attracts people to stride when they're afraid and um, you know, that's how I've, I've always felt you know afraid of my environment to to do those things and um it wasn't until i came to westbridge that i was able to to feel comfortable enough with myself to do so and to get through that onion and peel away at the layers and uh you know i never ever would have thought that i'd be able to do the work that i've done on myself and you know, the relationship that I have with all of the staff members, um, which still remains today even though I'm a staff member, has ignited me to be able to do all of those things and work on all of those things.
2: I think it also points out that, um, you know, if, if it's a relationship that we have with people that provides the the framework and the ability to have some of those tough conversations that sometimes we have to have with people in in treatment, and that we like to say that you know you put you put so many deposits in the bank account uh, of that relationship, and then when it comes time to make a withdrawal, um, it doesn't hurt as much. Um, you're heard more. For instance, if I have a you know a pretty open and honest relationship with someone, and it's respectful and supportive. When the time comes to say to somebody, you know, um, this isn't working for you, or you know, if you really need to take a look at, at how you're responding to this, or you know, um, I really think that uh, you could have done you could have done this more effectively, then it's often it's heard, it's done respectfully, and you can give the kind of feedback that and sometimes um, in other circumstances you might get a pushback for, you, or people might be resistant or people will just um, start debating with you, and um, and that's not effective
3: for anybody. Right, and that just, I mean, it promotes the opposite of what I just mentioned. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many treatment facilities, I mean, I, I've literally uh, been in at least 10 in my life, um, which were not all drug and alcohol treatment facilities, but between the troubles that I caused when I was young and, you know, up to the present, um, people just, uh, as staff, were in charge, and they didn't meet you as an equal, and, you know, I was yelled at, um, screamed at, uh, disrespected. If they were having a bad day, it was right on the front of their face, you know, and it was my problem all of a sudden, and, you um, You know, that's why it was so hard for me to get anywhere.
2: And we'll be right back after this commercial. Um, Please give us a call weighing in on this discussion. We'll be right back.
1: You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us
0: that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network.
1: Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy
0: R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio,
1: voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: Welcome back, everyone. This is One Hour at a Time, and I'm Mary Woods, and our guest today is Reed Slavin, and we're talking about uh, strength-based treatment, stigmatizing um, participants and clients, and discriminating against participants and clients. Um, Some of the research that was done at Dartmouth is uh, based on what they have developed or stages of treatment, and When we look at stages of treatment, which is what happens between the the treatment provider and the individual, which is different than stages of change, which is how people change internally, there are basically four stages of treatment. The first stage is is the engagement stage, where a person does not have regular contact with the program or the therapist, and the goal is to establish a working alliance. The next stage is persuasion, where the person has regular contact with the program but does not want to reduce their substance use or or really focus on treating their mental illness. And the goal here is to increase awareness, develop ambivalence, and increase motivation to change. The next stage of treatment is the active treatment, where the person reduces their substance use for at least one month but less than six months. And um, the goal here is to further reduce substance use and attain abstinence. Um, And then the fourth stage of treatment is relapse prevention, where the person has not experienced problems related to their mental illness or substance use for uh, six months. Um, Usually they're abstinent from substances for six months. And this, the goal for relapse prevention is to identify triggers and coping skills so that people are able to maintain their recovery from either mental illness or substance use disorders. Um, when light throws them a curve. And I think that, you know, as treatment providers, we're really good at the active treatment stage. Um, um, we're, we're probably a little... Um, some of us are better at helping develop ambivalence than others. I think the, the, the stage of treatment that often gets really um, pushed aside is the engagement stage of treatment. And when I talk about that, you know, if... If you do outreach, you know, going out where people are is really important for engagement. When somebody comes in, it's important to identify what their goal is. Maybe their goal is to get an apartment. Maybe their goal is to get on benefits. Maybe their goal is to um, go to college. Or maybe their goal is just to get their family off their back. But whatever their goal is, it has to be what they're looking for, not what we think is the important thing for them to do at the moment, being able to build trust so that you accept someone for who they are and, and, and what they're doing. Rita mentioned about going to the homeless shelter, and I think that um, you know, being able to um, welcome someone who just came from the homeless shelter who may be living on the streets into your office in a way that's respectful and treats them as somebody of worth. You know, what it, What does the furniture look like when somebody walks in? What are the color of the walls? Are the magazines like eight years old? I, I, I go to this one doctor who I don't think has sh- changed his magazines in four years, and it's like the same boring magazines every time I go. Um, do we really help people get to their appointments? Do we help them with transportation? Um, do we provide prompts like telephone calls? If somebody has an outpatient appointment at 2 o'clock tomorrow, do they get a phone call 20 hours in advance reminding them of that phone call, or is that considered enabling someone because it's their responsibility to manage their own treatment? I know from my perspective, um, if somebody doesn't prompt me 24 hours, hours in advance, I'm not going to remember my, my, my doctor's appointments. Um, I really have to keep constant vigilance to make it to my hair appointments every six weeks. And um, and I have a fairly functioning brain. So, you know, what are the things that we do to really engage people? Um, do we offer people coffee when they come in? Do we offer them a, a water? Um, what do we do to really help people feel like they're they're part of a of a community of treatment and, and and someplace where they feel welcomed and valued? And do we talk to people about what are your strengths? What are the things you like to do? Um, you know, we just um, you know, we had a basketball game here on Friday where we had a bunch of the staff and the, and the participants playing basketball down at the Y, and you know, to see people running down the court and smiling and making baskets and not making baskets and cheering each other on and um, razzing each other, you know, because you know they got in their face or they didn't get in their face, and and seeing all that, that was just recovery in motion. That was just. You know, a good example of how we can work with people to help them get beyond their their perceptions of themselves and our perceptions of them. You know, it never ceases to amaze me when I see somebody who's who's really athletic or who's really good musician or who's really good artist or who is um, you know just really good at math and um, you know nobody. When, when they come to us, nobody has highlighted that. You know, nobody, nobody has said, like, wow, this person is really good at math um, or this person is a really good chef or, or artist or whatever. And I think that um, sometimes helping people find their strengths is, is, is as important as helping them, um, you know, learn about their weaknesses. Um, I can't think of anything more depressing from, from my perspective than have to go, Work with a team of people who always talk to you about what you're not doing as opposed to what you are doing and I think that um, sometimes in treatment we are focusing on the deficits and on what people aren't able to do. Um, I can remember once when um, somebody was leaving an addiction twenty eight addiction addiction treatment program and um wanted to go get a job, and they had a job interview on Tuesday. They left the treatment program on Monday, and, um, you know, Tuesday morning they came back from the job interview, and they were reeking of alcohol, and they didn't get the job. But the important thing there is that was a real-life experience. We could say, you know, do you think the fact that we can smell alcohol has anything to do with you not getting a job, as opposed to saying to somebody ahead of time, you can't go to that Job interview because you're reeking of alcohol, and that's just kind of one example of of how we we help people kind of work with the real world and let let the universe provide feedback. Because um, we all know that if if we don't change what needs to be changed, we keep getting opportunities in our life to to keep cha- keep making those changes. So um, so when we think about being recovery focused, we we need to think about people as being individuals, and they're not an addict, they're not a schizophrenic, they're not um, a manic depressive. <coughs> that they are people who have individual strengths, and interests, and goals. And um, helping people to learn with the, learn to live with a chronic illness is really important. That um, understanding that that you can cope with this. <coughs> and that there's a way to to manage this over the course of of your lifetime. And then really focusing on people's ability to function rather than um, um, their symptoms. And then once again, use of language. (coughs) I'm sorry, it's really dry here. And and are we using pejorative statements? Are we using hopeful language? (coughs) The use of self-help. And um, peer counseling and mentoring, which is what um, Rita's been doing, and maybe you can share a little bit of that. While I go get some water.
3: Absolutely. Um, well, I'm going to start with the mentoring, uh, which is basically keeping a uh, a constant vibe of hope and helping people to do the things that Mary was talking about, which could be anything from, you know, going to the Social Security office to doing laundry or cleaning. Um, You know, sometimes mental illness or, you know, addiction can get in the way of being able to do these things to the best of our ability. And it's been my experience doing this job that, you know, once I start doing a few dishes, um, it's like a monkey see, monkey do. And the other the participant or client will then on their own get the idea that they need to do this and start to do it themselves. And, you know, it's just so nice to see because it's like that little nudge was all that was needed for them to be successful in completing this task. And, you know, that goes for a lot of things, um, 12 step. Program meetings and um, grocery shopping, you know basic life necessities um, sometimes are hard to complete when you're in, you're symptomatic or um, having cravings or you know you're not sure you know you're pre contemplative of you know which direction you want to go in and you know sometimes just being with somebody who supports you no matter what, and also they know that I'm in recovery, they know that I do a 12-step program, um, they know that I struggle just like any other human being does, I think it makes for a very good relationship and a very good connection to the point that um, it's, it's much easier for them to be successful and they feel like they've accomplished things um, more often than they would if they were to be alone all the time. And, uh, you know, that's huge, too, you know, the loneliness piece. Nobody likes to be alone, and when you have somebody coming to meet you um, just to do common-day things, you know, that's nice. And, uh, you know, it's really um it's really just a privilege and uh these guys are so grateful for us being there it's just unexplainable how they react so um with that i think we're going to take a commercial
2: we are and we'll be right back after the next commercial break
5: Common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's WestBridge.org. Family Center Recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
0: Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension
4: Two views, different topics, questions, answers, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk
2: Stigma, discrimination, hope, uh, strength-based treatment. One of the things that I often heard early on in my career, um, when I was working in the addiction side of the aisle, if you will, <clears throat> it was something that was often quoted in the Alcoholics Anonymous um, literature: was that Alcoholics Anonymous was a program of attraction and not promotion. And I think that's a concept that, um, as treatment providers, that we can really adopt. Um, in our treatment centers, whether it were an individual therapist or a detox or a residential program or an, or an IOP, that, you know, how do we make our program one of attraction? When somebody walks in the door, are they greeted in a warm and friendly manner? Is Do they walk into um, an inviting atmosphere? Um, you know, are we modeling um, wellness? Do we have Decaffeinated coffee available? Do we have water available? <clears throat> do we have, um, you know, fresh air and sunshine available um, when somebody walks in a room? Is the environment pleasant? And do we use humor? You know, do we do we welcome people? Do we joke with people? Do we interact with people in an authentic manner? <clears throat> I think that um, anything we can do to um, to really look at. How we can make our environment more attractive and our programs more attractive. It's just a win win situation for everybody. And in going over my notes, I was looking at, I was able to get the uh, right figures for effective treatment. And client factors are 40% of what makes treatment effective, therapy and relationship are, um, therapy relationship is 30%. Hope and expectancy is 15% and a therapy model is 15%, and that's from Miller, Duncan, and Hubble and from 1997. Um, some of the things that's really important for us as providers if we're going to do a, a strength-based hope in uh, facilitated treatment is that we have to assume that the person has abilities versus deficits and that, and that we define people by what they can do versus what they cannot do. It's important that we have an assessment to identify current strengths and competencies um, and to really talk about um, what worked in the past, what, what was a good solution in the past, what was, what was like half a solution in the past, because most people have had experience solving some problems in their life, and um, it's important to understand what worked for them and that our goal should be to expand strength and utilize solutions that have worked for people in the past. So if exercise and diet works really well for someone, then that's something we need to incorporate. If spirituality is, is something that people really embrace, then that's what we need to incorporate. Um, last week we had a show on alternative um, treatments for addictive disorders, and we were talking about um, hyperbaric the use of hyperbaric chambers and the use of, um, you know, nutrients and, and supplements. And we, we were talking about all kinds of different things that we really need to maybe incorporate to help um, people focus on what's going to work best for them. <clears throat> the other thing it's really important to understand that um, when we talk about self-efficacy, how do what are the kind of treatment interventions that we do that really help people believe that, you um, that they have the ability to be successful. Reed was talking earlier about, you know, he's how he feels when he helps other people. But um, what are the things, Reed, that have happened to you that have helped you feel like you can do this a day at a time?
3: Um, well, I would definitely have to say, uh, provided that consistently hope has been um well, a part of my life, and you know when i um when i when I first got sober, I didn't even like myself, you know, and I had people who were liking me when I didn't even like myself, which was it almost seems cliche, but you know that's where I was at and you know, for me to do anything a day at a time, I needed help at that point. And the things that were most useful to me were the relationships, 12-step program, the counseling, um, you know, knowing that people cared about me. Um, I think sometimes, I know in my own experience, I came from a family that, you know, it may not, they might not have been bad people, but... Um, It just wasn't a very good situation and there wasn't a lot of hope present for any of us because we really just played off each other's diseases. And, you know, for me, stepping out of that situation and coming into an area where there's people who consistently show me hope, who help me to get through anything that I could possibly have come up because I've had some things that I didn't even know were a part of me come out, you know. And actually, as we speak, I've been been going through um, anxiety. And, you know, I spoke about that in my 12-step group, and somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I have it too. So being surrounded in the community and having people, you know, that really care about me and know me and understand, because they've been there, um, backed by, you know, treatment, um, by people who know how to kind of send me in the right direction and slow me down, whatever it might be, you know, just to get through. Sometimes it's not even a day. Sometimes, you know, it's a moment. Um, You know, I've been successful, but I'm still a human being. I still have you know, bipolar disorder, I still have a drug addiction and and alcoholism, and I still make mistakes, I still have bad days, I still have times when things are very, very tough for me. And, you know, without, you know, we keep mentioning the word hope, but, you know, without that present, what is there to stop me from giving up? Um, You know, um, so... I would say that, uh, you know, if there was any one thing that um, I could say that would be most useful for me to get through a day at a time, it's the environment that I put myself in and the people I surround myself with. Because healthy people create healthy outcomes.
2: How would you define recovery for yourself?
3: Well, I think that I would have to bring it back to our earlier conversation about progress. Um, I know people who have been, you know, in and out of 12-step programs for 25 years, um, relapsing. Um, They have coinciding mental illness, and, you know, um, they still make... Strides, and you know, I would, I could never say that that person has not had any recovery um, or progress. But for me personally, um, I believe that recovery is consistently working at yourself um, through thick and thin. You know. If I'm having a bad day, it's my goal just to get through the day. If I'm having a good day, it's my goal to get through the day and also help somebody else to get through the day. And, um, you know, clearly I, I don't use drugs and alcohol. And also, you know, um, I go to my sport groups. So, you know, they, it, it's, a, it's a journey and it's a day at a time and perfection doesn't exist in my life, um, I guess that would be where I would leave it.
2: And it's a great place to leave it. Um, recovery is a journey, and it, there's, there's many uh, side roads and uh, hills and valleys in the journey, but it's important to have somebody, that uh, a traveling companion with you on the journey. Or many companions with you on the journey. Thank you all for listening. Um, Have a great week, and uh, we'll look forward to talking with you next week.
3: Thank Thank you.